On this episode of Year One, we speak to Dr. Ronke, founder of Integrated Physical and Behavioral Health Alliance. Dr. Ronke has 15 years experience in mental health and integrated health. is CEO and board chair of Integrated Physical and Behavioral Health Alliance, chief editor of Integrated Health Magazine, associate professor at Lawhouse College of Medicine, an expert panel and contributing member of Forbes Business Council. We speak about continuous research, inner work, mental health, authenticity, remote working. If you are stressed, anxious, or feeling overwhelmed, Dr. Ronka provides the perfect advice. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years the challenges and rewards and everything else in between. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Dr. Ronka, welcome to year one. Satish and I are really glad that you've joined us today. I'm going to start off with the same question that we ask everyone that joins our podcast, and that is, we will find out about your business, but before we find out about your business, we want to find out about the person behind the business. So give us a little insight into your upbringing, your life that has brought you to the point and made you the person that you are today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Diane and Satish, for having me on this podcast. I'm super excited to be here. I was born and raised in Nigeria, and ever since I was a little girl, I always knew I wanted to work in mental health. To be precise, psychol I wanted to be a psychologist, a clinical psychologist. And when I was 20, my parents transitioned me from Nigeria to Kentucky to go to college. So I did my first two years of college in Nigeria and then my last two years of college at the University of Louisville in Kentucky where I studied psychology pre-med and I was going to go to med school. And after that, I had a few transitions shadowing doctors, working in a mental health clinic as a case manager with doctors, working closely with psychologists and psychiatrists. I realized I don't want to be a psychiatrist, nor do I want to be a psychologist because <laughs> I was at the forefront managing people with mental health. I was managing people with serious mental illness and working side by side with psychiatrists and psychologists. So I decided to be a neurologist. <laughs> I was going to go to school in the Caribbean or medical school in the Caribbean or in the Netherlands. And I kept pushing it forward because something didn't feel right. Every year I would get admitted and I would defer. And finally, I decided to get my MBA and go ahead and get my um, PhD in mental health. Before I chose a PhD in mental health, though, I looked at my strengths, my weaknesses, my passion. Mental health was still part of it. How do I stay in mental health, get my PhD in mental health without being a clinician? And I found this degree that really talks about the leadership and, the, and operationalizing mental and physical health. And at that point in my life, I realized I was very passionate in discovering the correlation between mental health and physical health. And how in some cases, depending on the type of chronic disease you have, there's a simultaneous mental health illness that goes hand in hand. So if you have diabetes, for example, some people might not understand there's typically a mood disorder that goes with it, especially when you have low blood sugar. Depending on the length and the intensity of diabetes, it could become a clinical issue where you become diagnosed, or it could become a temporary issue. If you have cardiovascular issues, some symptoms, not all of it, 
is very similar to panic attacks and anxiety. And I have a friend who has one of these diagnoses and sometimes she goes to the emergency room and they're like, you're fine, your heart is fine. You have a heart problem, but it's fine. But really she's having a panic attack, right? It really was being able to come in and focus on operationalizing mental and physical health by treating the body and the mind, which we call integrative. So I've been in healthcare. My career has just keeps waving in and out of mental and physical health, operationalizing it. And when you truly manage mental and physical health from a patient provider technology perspective and a payer perspective, the outcomes are just phenomenal. So I found myself in this with this degree and life opened itself up and I decided to start my own company where we help providers, payers, and healthcare technology operationalize mental and physical. I want to go back to the to one of your points that you made right at the beginning of Alturanka. You said at an early stage I knew I wanted to be involved in mental health. What was that trigger? What happened in your life that said, this is the direction that I need to focus on? That's a very interesting question. Growing up, my dad would always, at the beginning of each year, he has a diary and he would divide the diary with different affirmations and quotes to carry him through the year. And by the time I was about six, I got assigned a, a one chapter, one page I had to write for him. All the kids did. And Writing those affirmations and writing those uh, goals was very motivational for me and it changed me. So what I noticed as a child was I would write a lot. I would write poems when I'm feeling sad or stressed out. It would make me feel better. Um, I started to manage, not manage, but just look at human behavior. And I started to ask myself, what is this? And I found out psychology was the answer, right? Going to a psychologist, talking to them makes you feel better. If you don't have a psychologist, what are the things you can do for yourself to make you feel better? Going for walks, writing down your feelings in a way that helps you feel better, right? Because a psychologist asks you questions to help you process your emotions. You can also do it by writing. So as a child, I developed those skills. And in college, as soon as I got into college, all my friends were going through heartbreaks and I would just bring up my journal and I had like five questions I would ask them. And by the time I'm done, it would be like a form of a journal slash poem for them. And they would hold on to it and tell me it makes them feel better. So it just, it really just started as being a child and helping my dad write affirmations and write his goals. And then my dad made sure we always had journals as, as children. We had diaries right from when I was about 10 years old. And that was when the deep insights to become a psychologist started growing in me. I wish kids still have that. Having a journal, having a diary, I still have a few of mine. And once in a while, every couple of years, I go in and those goals I wrote in there is what I'm living right now. So it's a good strategy. It was what I needed as a kid. My parents somehow knew what to give me. Give me a diary. <laughs> that is amazing. As a parent, I'm curious to learn more about your parents, because obviously the narrative you just had is around them at a very young age, deciding to teach you emotional things and understanding your voices and narratives. What are they like? Are they entrepreneurs? Are they academics? Share a little bit about. You um, nailed it. You nailed it. My dad had his own business. He was a chemical engineer, worked for a textile company for a while. And then started his own company. And my mom is a teacher. When my mom was pregnant with me, she decided to go into, to go get her master's degree. 
So my dad was very supportive, got a maid for the family of six, <laughs> got a maid for the other five kids, and then I got a maid for my mom and I, and she had to go to school, literally live in school Monday through Friday, and the maid would take care of me. So they were very passionate. And as a kid, being a year, two, three years old, I remember slightly some of those experiences going to class with my mom. So my parents were entrepreneurs and academics, and my mom was very big on, this is going on, you have to get over it, process, fix it, move on. While my dad was, let's talk about it, let's talk about it, I would advise you, then you make a decision, and then you move. So they both had a very integrated approach that balanced out how to nurture us and raise us to be successful. But they really focused on our personalities, so that was very exciting. I'm curious with your time in Nigeria, and one of the things that's been a trend in my life, and Odiana and I talk about this quite a bit, and some of our other founders, especially founders that are immigrants, your home base is part of the pillars that just help you figure out who you are. And I recently finished reading Trevanova's book, and it was fascinating as he's describing life in Africa. And I'm curious, you have this academic mom, entrepreneur, dad, you are in the middle trying to think about entrepreneurship yourself. What's the backdrop like? What is you as a young person in Nigeria like? What is some of that sort of influence? Uh, luckily, growing up in Nigeria, I got to see something that a lot of people didn't see. So one of the biggest things in my dad's diary that we had to write was shoot for the sun. And if you fail... You would still be, I mean, shoot for the moon. And if you fail, you used to be among the lucky stars. Those, I remember when I was four years old, that was the first time I read that and that just stuck with me. So I would always say, just go for it. If you fail, you're still going to gain something out of it. The background I got from Nigeria was Nigerians are happy. And they have hope. <laughs> I mean, you can tell a Nigerian can have an accident and they cannot see and they cannot walk. And the next to you hear them say, but I can talk and I can move my hands. And you're like, what? They're hopeful. They have so much faith. So coming to America, my biggest shock was the psychological aspect of everything. There's this psychology, which I highly believe in, but you also have to look at some of the challenges of that, of your challenges as an adult is shaped by how you were raised as a child, right? Psychology in America is very big on that. But one thing that life taught me coming to America was my tuition was paid for, right? I didn't have to work a lot or go through that tuition thing with my, like, that my friends, international friends went through. But my last semester, I had $3,000 in student loans that I had to pay back. And that changed my life. Because when I graduated, the idea of paying $100 to some foreign entity some bank was just didn't make sense to me. So it really made me appreciate my parents in a way I cannot express. I'm glad my tuition was covered for <laughs> 95% of my life. And that 5% molded me and made me very grateful. And it also made me realize my childhood can determine my future and my current life in the most positive way. And if it does affect it in a negative way, I need to get over it. Because my parents did the best that they could. Just by that $3,000, I'm like, <laughs> that changed my life. Knowing that they had to sacrifice a lot to put me through that. Because they didn't have to. 
right? They could have made it all about themselves. Nigerians have hope. As I got more acclimated into the American culture, I realized I became a little bit more sensitive than I would like to and became more stressed out as I would like to. And I remember sitting myself down after going through a lot of stress for about two, three years saying, how would I have handled this before the social media be more sensitive stuff? And that changed my life again. And I'm like, I'm going back to the old ways. Get over it. Just process it. And that's what trauma is about, right? Trauma is your immediate response and decision to respond to a situation, right? If you decide I'm a victim, then you will become a victim. You decide right away I'm a survivor. I'm going to get over this. I'm going to move forward. Then those immediate decision and reaction would continue to influence your action in your brain and in your emotion, right? And then those you surround yourself with also matters. So I personally tend to process things mentally first before I emotionally communicate it to anybody. That's what works for me. And when I was getting stressed out, I was emotionally communicating people, communicating to people before I then mentally processed it, which just did not work for my personality. Mm -hmm. So I think really my upbringing about my dad, talk about it, write it down, process it, move on. And my mom saying, be strong, move on. Really just combines to give me the personality and the inner strength I needed to survive in a foreign country, which is brilliant. Really well said. Thank you for sharing that about your parents. Thank you. So Dr. Ronka, please tell us a little bit about your business. Sure. So, Give us the elevated pitch. <laughs> sure. So Integrated Fiscal and Mental and Behavioral Health Alliance really focuses on bringing together mental health and explaining and operationalizing mental health from the perspective of a patient, a payer, healthcare technology provider, and regulatory affairs. When you look at any country in the world, right, there are regulatory standards that we all have to meet, right, in order to provide care or improve care or identify some challenges in healthcare. And the central unit to all of this is the patients, right? So if you see healthcare technologists coming and say, I'm going to create this app, wellness app, and these are the, all the good things I need to put in. When they bring me in, I always tell them, let's take a step back. How would a depressed patient accept and receive what you're giving them? Because it's a good idea, but I can tell you right now, that would make them more depressed. Because you're building this from a healthy person perspective of this is a good idea. But an average depressed person, depending on the type of depression they have, or the category of their depression may not respond well to that. So putting the patient at the core really matters, which we always focus on. And then the payer, right? No matter how much business you do, if you don't get paid, regardless of if you're a nonprofit or for profit, you cannot keep your doors open, right? So making sure we meet the payer requirements so our providers can get paid. So there's a win-win for everybody is one of the areas we focus on. Interpreting and looking at the regulatory challenges. A good example was COVID. As soon as COVID happened, I did a regulatory review, literally by March 22nd. Like, okay, telehealth is going to blow up. We need to do something. COVID, from my perspective, will happen until December 2021, which I was wrong. It was longer. Most people were saying two, three months, but I, I thought it would be about a year and a half or about 20 months. 
So we need to plan for it. From a psychological perspective, there's going to be loneliness and isolation. Domestic violence, alcoholism is going to go, it's going to increase. What do we do in mental health to improve it? What do I do for myself? I can't isolate. I know the consequences for me. Looking at that from a regulatory perspective, down the line before providers and people even start looking at and helping people operationalize and interpret that. So when those policies are coming to the front, you're already prepared. So we did that during COVID. I was working for a tech company then. I didn't have mine. But that's one of the expertise my company brings to the table. And then for providers, how do we streamline this for providers? Providers, are, I'm happy people are talking about provider burnout now, but we used to call it administrative burdens before, right? So we, we've just changed the name. But how do we simplify things for providers so they continue to have the fulfillment to provide the best care? A provider who is sick, who is pissed off, who is not happy, who is stressed out, is not going to give a patient the best care. Looking at this from a technology perspective, we're in the tech age, we're in an innovation and transformational stage of technology. It's going to continue innovation will continue to increase forever. Technology is not going anywhere. So how do we ensure that technology providers use and patients use really provides the optimal benefits to both parties? And we can bring that because it's not about the idea of a doctor saying, I need a touch-to-speak option for my technology. It's really how does it impact the outcome of care? Does it help you provide better care for the member? And is the member seeing that benefit, right? Not just the doctor. So making sure everything we do really has a positive outcome to decrease cost, a patient's perspective and patient outcome, making sure that providers have fulfillment, there's patient satisfaction, making sure that we can promote health equity because everybody, the definition of health equity looks different for everybody, but everybody should have the rights to the best care at the best time and at the right time. So in a summary, that's what we do. Why now though? So your business is about two and a half years, right? Mm -hmm. What was the reason or why did you feel that now was the right time for you to establish this business? What opportunity were you either fulfilling or gap were you addressing? Yeah, so the gap really was, the initial gap was the lack of understanding of integrated health. Psychiatrists feel primary care or medical specialty doctors, cardiologists, urologists don't understand mental health and they really don't care in all honesty because they're experts, right? They're specialists. Go talk to your primary care doctor. Go talk to someone else. And in some cases, somebody who has muscular degeneration, for example, who is told they're going blind, every time they go to their eye doctor, there's a lot of anxiety. That diagnosis can cause depression, right? And that depression can help expedite that blindness if it's not treated. So we continue to see that it's leading to lower, lower outcome of care if it's not, patients are not simultaneously managed. So that's one of the big issues. Another issue is people wait to be told what's going to happen, right? Like with COVID, everybody was so focused on COVID. And for me, I was focused on the mental health aspect of it. What do I do to make sure mental health, my mental health is okay? a year from two from now, what do I need to do to make sure I don't have post-traumatic stress disorder due to COVID, which a lot of people have right now. They just don't know, right? So at that point in time, I had an incident happen at work 
where I was given a pay raise of $10,000 when I finished my PhD, which a lot of people would say it's great. And I did appreciate that. But the other people who didn't get a pay raise who had high school diploma also got a raise. Sorry, who didn't graduate also got a raise. They both have a high school diploma. One of them got a $10,000 raise. Another one got a $25,000 raise. And I felt devalued. If you're going to give me a raise, give me a raise. Especially when my boss called and said, because you graduated, I'm giving you a raise. I'm like, oh, great. And then followed it up by, and these other people will get a pay raise. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do what I need to do. And in a few months, I'll leave. Three months later, I told my boss, my former boss, I have a job offer, $75,000 more. He's like, oh, I'll match it. I'm like, no, I really need to go because I no longer have fulfillment at this job. So I really need to make sure I'm aligned with something I love because I really just realized that job wasn't the right job. That atmosphere was not healthy for me. But I gave him a six months notice to leave, which now I realize I was just being too loyal and too nice. Four weeks is good enough. Unfortunately, we were getting acquired and during the acquisition, he did not communicate that information to them. And I was retracted and I was pulled in, given an offer letter without even being told what I would do or anything. And I looked at it and I said, I don't want to work for you. I really want to move on. I didn't tell them I had an offer because it wasn't about the money. It was my internal fulfillment that was I was most passionate about. And I'm like, okay, if you want me to stay, here is another moral factor for me. Why I'm leaving, aside from the lack of fulfillment, is being devalued. And I didn't really approach it as being devalued. It's here's what I do. Here's what I bring to the table. If you want me to stay, I need a $25,000 raise. Because when I, when I graduated, this is what happened. I was expecting a normal HR response of we don't have the money or we'll put that into consideration. But instead... What I heard, the response I got was, you people are greedy. Well, there's two of us on the phone. There's me and the person talking. I'm a woman. I'm black. <laughs> you people are greedy. I went into shock right away because I felt dehumanized. And then I was later to informed, if you don't accept the offer, the acquisition is off. And you know what that means. There's going to be a big lawsuit. We're a smaller company. They're a publicly traded company. It just wasn't worth the fight. Wow. So we got acquired, but I needed to come back. I'm going to come back. So seven months later, I kept doing a lot of research. This is normal with startups. I'm not the first person it would happen to. But I did my research, evaluated my strengths, and then decided I needed to come back for this person in a positive way. Because I understand I have to act in a way that works best for not for him, but for me. And I decided to get back at him. I want to make the amount his boss's boss makes. And how do I do that? Because <laughs> I can get angry for whatever. It doesn't affect him in any way. It's all going to be on me. I got another job with a very high tech company. I was going to go work for them, but I just knew that was not best for me. I needed to start my own company and I had one goal in mind to make how much his boss's boss made. <laughs> and that has been, that was the motivating factor. I always thought I would be a CEO. I thought managing other people's business was my areas of ex area of expertise, but I'm glad that he was attentive. I'm glad that he was truthful and honest about how he felt in this world, age and world of sensitivity and people sugarcoating what they think. 
he came out true to who he was. And I came out true to who I was. It wasn't about the money. He didn't have the knowledge that I had an offer of 75000 that I wasn't even asking them, additional 75000 that I wasn't even asking them to match. He didn't have that before he called me greedy, but I'm grateful. And in all honesty, I tell my staff this, at least once a week, I send him a prayer of thank you. Because <laughs> if he did not do that, I would still be working for somebody else. I would not be in my calling. I needed that to happen for me to be here today. So again, wherever he is, I'm so grateful to him. I send him love and blessings. <laughs> he deserves the love and blessing because he was the ultimate motivating factor. Number one, nobody will ever speak to me that way ever again. Number two, I never in my biggest career or life thought I would be where I am today. I would have never dreamt big. Yeah. If he had come in and say, oh, we're sorry, we can't afford that. Let's talk about it next year. If he had given me that pep talk. No, but he was like, no. <laughs> so I'm grateful. What a great way to reorient that message, man. I had a similar instant when I was starting my second company. My first one was accidental in university. Mm -hmm. I kind of just did it because I needed the money and I had a big loan. My parents didn't pay for anything. <laughs> and I was like, I need to figure out how to do this. But my second business, I was like, I don't know. I have this job and I can stick around and they weren't valuing me. I was the only South Asian in a very predominantly Italian organization. I wasn't going to move up. There's always going to be another family member who would take my role. And I remember going to the president saying, hey, listen, I want to go on my own or give me a real game plan. How can I move up the ranks? What is the highest level I can get into? And the guy looked at me in my eye and he said, this is a family business. You're not family. So you can only go as high as we allow you to do. But that would be better than any other company you can ever work for, too. And I said, okay. Wow. I, I remember leaving that night going, not only am I going to start my own business, I'm going to get so big that you would come back to me as a client. Wow. And, and that's what happened three years later. They came back as a client and it was fantastic as a closure for me. But, you know, that, that anger was the final sort of feel to push me to the uncomfortable zone. So my mm -hmm. question after my long narrative is, cool, you're like, I'm going to do my own thing. What was the first scariest thing you wrote down on your book with? I have no idea what I'm going to do. Wow. So I'm glad you, thank you for sharing your story. That's very powerful. And after all of that, I started researching. The first thing I did was I started researching and I found out that was a common thing. Actually, that was very common. And it takes a span of about 18 months to 20 months for you to come back fully, which I was thinking I would come back in two weeks. You know, that was my first business idea, right? So, and I was like, wow, that's too long. But really, it did take me 18 months to really come back fully. So the first thing I did was why this happened to me. Research how I showed up. And then just, I would sit myself down once a week and give myself feedback on how I should handle things in future. I kept training myself mentally because I know I'm going to battlefield. So COVID was a blessing. I always said COVID was a blessing and for some people and for the whole world, we had good things come out of COVID. We have really bad things come out of COVID. And 
happened due to COVID. Some of the good things was not having to drive to work. So that one hour, how do I use it in a different way? Now? And that's when I conducted my research on a continuous basis. And then seven months, I had a deadline by July. I need to have an answer. So in July, I sat myself down and said, now, what are you going to do? So um, really, it was really having a game plan, looking at people who have gone through that and who have publicly talked about it, and then assessing my inner skills. So it was a journey. And as we tell this story, it looks easy. Like, oh, this happened and I make this decision. No, you will go through some internal challenges, shock, healing, reflection, and you have to do the inner work. Talking to people, whatever you need to do, mine was a lot of research, a lot of meditation and yoga, a lot of exercising, and just researching on the other entrepreneurs and looking at what they do. And what I, the way my business started, where I thought we would make the most money and be the most relevant, is not where we are. Realizing upfront I needed to be agile. That was one of the biggest shock in my research. And I'm grateful for that research because I still fall back on a lot of the research today. So it's quite an experience and I will not change it for anything in the world. <laughs> That's awesome. Should I dive a little bit deeper into mental health, if you don't mind? And yeah. the context behind that is as early stage founders, you've got a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. You stress about cash flow. You stress about finding the next opportunity, you stress about sustainability, your next hire. Everything is a state of heightened anxiety during those first years, right? What advice would you give to early stage founders in terms of A, identifying that there is a, that you need to look after your mental health and B, some of the tactics that you can deploy to help you go through those moments of angst, anxiety, and stress? <laughs> yes. Number one, I think it's knowing you're going to be okay. Regardless of the outcome, just know you're going to be okay. In terms of the anxiety, I was lucky that when I actually dove deeper into this, I was going for my dad's funeral. I had a stopover in Germany for some business. And I was talking to a leadership coach when I told him that story and some of the challenges I had at the former company told me I was not submissive enough. And if I was submissive enough, I wouldn't go through some of the challenge I went through, including being called greedy. That sparked something in me <laughs> that I could not even explain. And I remember getting off the call. I jumped on my bed with my laptop and I wrote my business plan for six hours straight. I did not go to bed till 3.30 a.m. that morning. And I look at the business plan, identified my competitors, everything. But one thing he told me before telling me I should have been more submissive and just do what they wanted because it would help my mental health, which for me was, I know wouldn't help my mental health. It would actually stress me out because I'm not being authentic and I'm not getting any fulfillment out of it. One thing he told me was, what is your financial sustainability? sustainability? And at that moment, I realized I had the financial cash flow for five years that I had saved. And I'm like, if I go into business fully and it doesn't work out, I have money to be okay. So that gave me the confidence to just go straight full speed into what I really wanted. I'm fortunate that I had that liquid cash to do that. But it got to a point I no longer wanted to touch my liquid cash, right? Because... 
keep spending and not replenishing. It's not nice, but you open your account and it's just dropping, right? So one of the things I came up with was I need a passive income. I need a passive income. However, it has to be around my area of passion. I no longer want to be engaged in anything that does not bring me fulfillment. So even if the money doesn't come in, the fulfillment and the passion will make things work out for me. You may start with path A and before you know it, you're on path D. And path A leads to path D and path D is what really brings you the income, right? So I, I started with passive income and I became a professor, an adjunct professor, not necessarily for the income, but I needed more, more area where I could really allow my brain to explore in a way it hasn't done before to allow my creativity to show up and improve my, my, my passion so I could allow more business to flow in. So I thought being an adjunct professor would be, would be what would give me the passive income, but that was not what really worked out to, to give me the passive income. It was really a paving it forward for other entrepreneurs, mentoring people, being invited to join different boards and having different areas of expertise. And then taking that board membership and experience, I started to gain back to being an adjunct professor and also paving it forward for them. So for me, it was really, I thought that experience of teaching leadership in a college would do that, but it was really the real life experience of paving it forward, being an advisor, and then bringing those experience combined with mine back to my students really did the trick for me. So I would say just be authentic and look at, is this true to me? Am I faking it? Are you faking it so you can be authentic or are you faking it because that's what people want? So I think if you're true to your calling, you will always succeed. Let's talk about authentic voice for a second. A lot of the folks that we meet and who I mentor personally, being online is scary, especially if you've never had to do it in your corporate life or in your previous career, right? There's a generation like my kids that are born in the matrix. For them, that is the reality. Nothing else is different. But when I look at folks that are changing careers or building a new identity online, one of the ways that, that everybody tells you to do it is to go online, start sharing, right? Two times, three times, four times. And looking at your LinkedIn profile, you've got a public persona. You're out there, you're talking and you're sharing. I'm wondering in the early days as you decided to put yourself out there, what were some of the pros and cons or lessons in identifying authentic voice? Because we all think our voice is authentic. Nobody consciously says, well, maybe a few people consciously create a manipulative persona, right? But I like to think 90% of the humans that wake up in the morning are good humans with the best of intentions. What suggestions, guide, pros, cons can you recommend to somebody to think about or they start thinking about in their self out to the world? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the compliments that my LinkedIn profile comes across and my voice comes across authentic. I really appreciate that. I actually hide and shy away from publicity. And I would always tell my marketing manager, if somebody told me when I was starting my business, I would have to be out there. I would say, no, I'm comfortable <laughs> in conferences. I'm comfortable being a keynote speaker. I'm comfortable being in front of people. But when it comes to social media, I canceled Facebook in 2008. That's how much social media I don't like. I log into Facebook once or twice a year. 
Instagram off and on maybe for two months and then cancel it for the remaining eight months of the year. And it's probably the only one I use, but I would say my true authenticity on LinkedIn is not sharing everything. My profile and what I do on LinkedIn does not really signify or show a lot of what I do in the back end. The companies I'm engaged with, some of the ventures I'm involved in, and not even on LinkedIn because I'm too shy about it. For example, the World Health thing I put in, I just put that in last night. It happened last year. And my team were going to put it in. I'm like, hell no, I'm not ready to share that. I just was not comfortable yet. It took me a while to get there. It took me a while to put it in there that I have a doctorate degree. I just don't feel comfortable. And I would always tell my team, we're not sharing something that I'm not comfortable sharing yet. And we don't have to share everything I do or everything the company does. Check with yourself before you post it or I post it. How authentic does it sound? Because it's not about what I do or the company does. It's really about the end users. Do they need to know I'm involved in seven different ventures? What does it bring to them, right? Do I need to put my entire resume out there? For my personality, no. For somebody else, (laughs) yes. So I think authenticity is really, am I comfortable with this or am I cringing? And for me, a lot of times I'm not very comfortable being out there which it doesn't look that way it looks like I'm really out there but in all honesty that's about 25 percent of what we're showing I tend to tell them my team and even myself I'm just not ready yet there's quite a few things we're holding back on because I'm just like I don't know if I want to share this yet or I want to showcase this because of how I was raised my dad was really out there he was very comfortable with it but he was very protective about us being out there. And he would always tell us when he passed away, we didn't realize how much of a public figure he was, in all honesty, until he passed away. And during his funeral, we saw how big it was. And people told us, oh, that funeral is not going to work. This is what you need to do. You guys don't realize how big it is, which most kids don't know, right? Because it's just daddy to us. It's just a father to us. So I think he did shelter us. And if I'm going to share something, am I going to be comfortable with it 10 years from now? Because it stays on the internet forever. So I think it's the value it brings to the end user. And am I comfortable with it myself sharing that? If I do, what does it bring to the walls, right? I chose to share the world health thing because they're about to release a framework, right, that I participated in. So I'm very proud of the work that they've been doing that I got to contribute to so I think it's really you can share five times a day if that's what's authentic to you but you know sharing once a month is okay you know mm. authentic to you some people I see a lot of passion for people to go viral I'm like I don't want to go viral I like my privacy because <laughs> I <laughs> this freedom and power in privacy I mean think about it this way you see a movie star like Angelina Jolie she can't go to Target but when you think about James Cameron, when you think about um, some of the producers who have produced the biggest movies in the world, we all don't know what they look like, right? They can walk past us. That's the power behind the scene, right? They made those actresses and they're enjoying the fruit of their labor with the privacy. Now, there's some world they go into where everybody knows them, right? People recognize them. Most of the time, they go to Walmart, Target, nobody cares who they are. They're normal. Yeah. I think that's the power behind it is being able to live your life comfortably 
without people constantly recognizing me. I, mean, I see people, I want to be like Beyonce. I'm like, oh no, you don't even understand. She can't without having 10 guards around her house. She can't just go into a parking lot without them checking the neighborhood to be sure it's safe for her to come out. I'm like, that's not life. I want to, I want my freedom now and in future. And for me, that determines what I. Dion, I don't know how you, Dion, I don't know how you interpret it because everybody we speak to is a different idea around public, but you know, I'm forcing Dion to come out into the world movement, putting his face on flyers, podcasts, and it's going to be exciting. Yeah, I'm behind the scenes type person, Shatisha. Being um, out there is not my comfortable area. But I would like to touch on one last topic, if you don't mind. And this is related to an article that you were part of, which was reasons why remote businesses fail and how they can thrive. And we are now living in this global economy where remote working has become such a normal part of our life. Even though we been doing, I mean, COVID, it was really the catalyst to drive remote work. And even though we've been doing it for two years, there's still a lot that companies need to learn and do differently. And what I'd love is if you could give some of the insights around remote working, the tips that early stage founders or companies should actually be thinking about with this remote approach to Absolutely. I'm a fan of remote work, which I never thought I would be. <laughs> I love the idea of dressing up and going to work, right? Now, I started to see my staff a long time ago when I was leading a tech company go through anxiety when they're running late. You know, that, and then they show up to work, it takes an hour before they come down. Okay. We technically have just lost like an hour and a half, and they have just lost about the first three hours of their morning because of traffic. Yeah. So I instituted, if you wake up in the morning, you don't want to come to work, just text me. Please don't call me because <laughs> I also don't want to be stressed in the morning. Just text. Don't wait for a response. Go ahead and work from home. So I instituted that. You could see the anxiety of people go down. I would say as a startup, trust your community. Trust your staff. Take care of your staff. Look at their personality. Ask what, what works for them. Now, I had a staff who likes to go to co-works to go work instead of working from home. And when I found out, I'm like, okay, we can pay a certain amount of your co-work every month, even though it's a remote work, but that's my way of supporting what's going to enhance that. For me personally, I've done, I do the, I'll rent a space for a year and then take six months off and work from home. So I can continue to change that to see how I feel. Does it still feel the same? Or I would, I would rent a space and only go to work three, four times a week and work from home at the same time. But one of the things that works consistently is having that team foundation, right? So we have our team meetings. Everybody's on camera if, it's, if they feel comfortable, right? If they don't feel comfortable, they don't have to be on camera. I make sure I'm ready to be on camera any time of the day. So no pajamas, no walking in pajamas. The accountability comes from the leadership and the environment I create, which is my staff comes first. Their happiness and fulfillment comes first. So every time I have one-on-ones with them, I always ask, are you okay? Are you stressed out? How did the project last week or last month go? Are you still okay? Because I want to continue to measure their fulfillment and their happiness. That's what's going to make me succeed. Not that they're showing up to work. 
right? Or they're online because you can be online. You can be online and you can not be working. So, and you can choose to work for four hours and give me 10 hours of work in four hours. So it's really checking in with the staff and reassuring them your honesty is okay. I had a staff tell me one time she likes to watch movies when she's working. That was a tough one for me to handle. That was really tough for me to handle. You watch movies while you're working? Okay, let's walk around that. <laughs> you can do that when you're working from home and I'm not present. But when you come to the office, please don't watch movies on your phone. That just doesn't sit well with me. Even though I want to support your happiness, it just doesn't. It's not a good morale. Understanding your staff, check in continuously. Don't tell them to build resi resilience without giving them the platform to have those motivational actions to help them succeed. So team, sometimes we buy lunch for everybody. Everybody, let's jump on and have lunch together. Hey, everybody, let's take, I believe when there was a shooting in Texas, and one of the things we did was no, no social media, everybody. Social media breaks, give everybody half day off. Even though they were working from home, what can I do to support your success? Just because you're working from home does not mean I'm no longer required to help you succeed in terms of your mental health or your productivity, right? I still have to lead. So ensuring I can bring everything I can to the table with your success. But, and in some cases, you have staff who have different time zones as you. And I'm not an early riser. People who work for me know that. So I would always check with them how comfortable are you having a meeting at 8 p.m. at night or if it's outside your zone, please say no. There's no consequences because I need that positive, continuous positive attitude to keep showing. So I think leaders just need to be checking with your staff continuously, not once a month, continuously. And continue to revise the platform you provide for their success. And as a startup, I set deadlines but I'm also the boss. If we don't meet the deadline, my staff know anxiety is not, is not allowed in the company. If we have an event, we had a webinar one time, one of my staff was, her anxiety was at this level. And right before we were about to go live, I told her, log off. I'm logging off too. <laughs> Let's jump on a quick call. Hey, go off camera. No need for anxiety. If you fail, nobody needs to know except you. And I will not hold you accountable. So... Let's change that energy. And she did. And I was looking at the video yesterday. This happened about eight months ago. That was one of the best she's ever showed up. Right? I'm like, wow, this is, she did so well. Because it's okay to fail. It's okay not to meet deadlines in some cases. If it's going to help with your mental health, with our next productivity, with our team cohesion, if the outcome of pushing a deadline back is better than meeting a deadline, then that's what we do. And I always tell them, that's why you work for me. No stress. <laughs> I run a company where I've gone through burnout. And one of the things I always promise my staff is if you go through burnout of stress in your life, th this job would not be the reason. It would be for something else. Perfect. And just to close out this conversation, this journey that you've been on, Dr. Ramka, what is the one lesson that you think that everyone should learn at some point in their lives? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> <laughs>
It doesn't, what doesn't, no, really, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. And look at every negative scenario, just like Shatish and I did, and look for something positive. And look at your community. I've had friends who have tried to bond with me with that negative experience I had, which is great. I want their support, but I don't want to keep talking about it from that negative angle, right? I need to talk about it from a motivational place to push me forward. And that's what I would say. Look at what moving forward looks like for you. Define that from your own internal perspective. What's your growth factor from this experience? So for me, that's what I would really say is go deep inside. And so what do I need to do to be okay, to be really okay? So this can become a positive thing for me. When I say the people who did this to me, I literally, I would give them a big hug. I pray for them every week. I mean, that's how much I really see them as a positive factor in my story. So I would say we're all going to go through challenging times in our lives, but let's build that community of support. Let's be, let's build on how can we conquer and overcome this? Because life is going to happen regardless of what we, how perfectly we design it. Life will happen, but let's enjoy our cake and have it at the same time, right? I like that. If uh, people wanted to follow you, find out more about your business, where would they go? What are the best places? I would say go on our websites. It's www.ippha.com. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn, Dr. Kamalafi, Ronki Kamalafi on LinkedIn. I'm happy to answer questions that people have. Mentor, coach, support, startups, people who are ready to put in the work, succeed. Because it's hard work and you have to mentally motivate yourself. <laughs> You have to mentally push yourself forward. Thank you, Dr. Anka. I really appreciate your time and we wish you everything of the best for all your future endeavors. Thank you Thank so you. much for having me. I appreciate it. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Satish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bluemex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.